Welcome to the first episode of the Chasing Capital podcast, where we focus on young VCs, operators, and founders giving insight and advice to college students. Our first guest on the show is Kevin Zhang, partner at Bank Capital Ventures, where he invests in B2B startups focused on productivity, automation, future of work, and supply chain technology tied together by the concept of the efficiency frontier. Previously, he was head of product at Fundera, a small business financing platform that was recently acquired by NerdWallet in October. He studied econ and poli-sci at Columbia University, where he led the Entrepreneurship Society and now plays an active role in the alumni community, serving as a board member of the Alumni Association and as an organizer for the Colombian tech community. Today, we'll cover everything from the future of work to what not to do as an aspiring college founder. As the future of work is, is one of your main focuses, how do you assess whether a company is merely experiencing a COVID bump or if they're actually will have enduring success and have actually found product market fit? I think it's super hard to know. I mean, in, and in many cases, we don't feel well-equipped to guess. Um, I think that, you know, the, the classical model is sort of, is it something that, you know, there, there are products where there's an adoption curve and there's some activation energy you need in order to get things set up. You have to integrate it. You've got to set up your preferences. You got to invite your team. You know, there's certain things that are activation energy required where in a normal environment where you're in the office and things work fine, like you're not incentivized to make that activation energy possible. But in a remote environment, you're willing to make that investment. And after you've made the investment, the kind of the steady state of it is more valuable and a better experience than what you had used before in a non-remote environment. Those are probably the kinds of products where, um, you, you know, they probably are well positioned to thrive. Um, my guess is sort of, you know, any companies that didn't have web conferencing um, before, you know, maybe they go from zero to, you know, maybe it's 100 now, maybe it'll be, you know, 30 or 40 after the pandemic, but it'll still be a, a tale of, you know, of, uh, of, of compelling, um, uh, you know, growth and usage. I think, um, you know, I was just talking to someone in kind of the bank capital you know, portfolio group recently about, you know, like furniture sales, you know, like is furniture a long-term trend or, uh, you know, a short-term trend I, you know, I recently ordered a dining room table and, um, you know, I was sort of six months back ordered. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the, like the short-term cases, like people are just pulling their purchase forward, right? Like the, the pessimistic cases that, um, you know, people only need, you know, one or two dining, one dining room table. <laughs> most, most of my friends only need one dining room table, um, perhaps different for others, but, um, uh, you know, and, and if you pull the purchase forward, you're not necessarily going to have a higher you know, um, sales volume in, in subsequent years. I think the like optimistic case is that, you know, people who wouldn't have considered it before are making the move to, you know, have more space who would have lived in an apartment without a dining room table would have moved to, you know, a suburban area or even a rural area where they have plenty more space and they're making the investments and kind of making sure they can still stay close to their friends or making the investments to make that arrangement work. And maybe more people would choose to do that, you know, after the pandemic and there will be kind of a, a, you know, a different, a realignment of the proportion of people who live in urban versus urban environments. Maybe that drives more furniture sales permanently. Like it's hard to know these things. I think we try and create the narrative for each side for any given investment. And if, when we feel more conviction in the fact that there's a long-term um, impact, I think we're more willing to make an investment in areas where we're unsure or more pessimistic about it, you know, we're less willing to, to invest behind it.
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it kind of build it boils down to like how ingrained are some people's habits and whether they're totally willing to change their lifestyle and find I guess products or services that fit that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, so where do you see the biggest opportunities being in in your efficiency frontier hypothesis? Is it more so those involved in infrastructure required for the application of relatively new technologies. So companies like, like Grid AI, one of your portfolio companies, or those directly affecting our interactions with each other. You said the two categories are infrastructure versus, you know, versus, versus those where we're like directly involved, where you're kind of directly inter like interacting with the software. So like something in the realm of like a Slack, for example. Yeah, I think that, you know, my sense is, um, you know, I, as a venture investor, I, I sort of take the perspective less that I can predict the future and more that, you know, we, you know, want to identify particularly promising trends in the present um, and, and just bet behind them. Um, I, I think that, you know, my sense for having worked with a few infrastructure companies over the years is that, um, you know, that, that, uh, the, as academic research advances and as sort of new and interesting tools, get, you know, what happens is sort of often big technology companies get built and they have, you know, unique challenges in managing their development environments in their um, data pipeline in their databases and networking protocols and security capabilities. And so they then invest in you know, new technology and infrastructure to support their needs. And then that often ends up, you know, spinning out as an open source project or that team ends up leaving and starting an infrastructure company. So, you know, my sense of infrastructure is just often responsive to emerging needs and incorporates the latest academic research. Um, and, and I think that's sort of a, a uh, you know, it'll always exist. Um, and I, I think that you know, I think what's powering changes in the workflow software that we all use is a little bit different. I think sort of what's giving data tailwind is is the ability of each of us increasingly to identify, find, identify, and buy our own tools. Uh, I, I think that it used to be that you know software companies would sell to your CIO or your CTO. You would use whatever your company assigned you, uh, but I think as the browser becomes more capable, um, as more software is built in the cloud versus having to be hosted in your environment, um, it becomes easier for all of us to use whatever we want, right? Like they're not gonna block Google Drive and they're not gonna block Airtable and they're not gonna block, you know, there's all these tools that people wanna use to be more productive. They prefer it to whatever they had at work. And so I think that's a sea change and, and, and allows companies to compete on what users need versus what this, what sort of the IT organization wants to buy. And I think users, you know, let, prefer things like, you know, greater usability and faster loading. And I think that's powering tools like, you know, Superhuman and Notion and Airtable and others. And that, that you know, I think that, that trend will, will continue. I think that as more and more users become empowered to identify and use it by their own tools, I think that um, many, many of them will choose not to work directly in kind of the, monolithic systems of record that their IT organizations purchase for them. Yeah. Do you think down the line though, that like some of the products you mentioned will almost become commodities because there is such user choice and 
the different and the differentiating factors really aren't like that significant. It might be slightly faster, for example. Yeah, I don't think that's um, a fair risk. You know, I think if you map this to like a lot of people call it the consumerization of the enterprise, right? And um, I think if you map the learnings from consumer, you know, is now we have this direct to consumer revolution, right? And um, uh, you know, Casper, you know, was one of the first companies to pioneer this idea of you know shipping a mattress in a box, and um, they pioneered the category. But turns out that you know lots of companies can put a mattress in a box, and I think that you know their valuation and you know their their trajectories of business has been complicated by the emergence of a lot of a very comparable competition. Um, I think that when you have kind of a, I think it used to be that you could have both a technology sort of advantage and a distribution advantage because these relationships with, with CIOs and IT organizations was often relatively proprietary, you know, it's harder to get in. Um, but, you know, when, when you can just go directly to the consumer and sell software and, you know, and software is easier to build because there's more open source libraries and more components that, you know, that you can use to, to put things together. Um, I do think there's a risk that, you know, the next software version of Casper, some workflow tool that we find interesting and useful is going to face price competition from copycats. And maybe that will make it harder to build a big business. Um, I don't have a strong opinion on that. I think the software business model is better than the than the kind of retail and consumer products business model because you don't yeah. have any physical costs. But um, but I think it's a risk. Um, I think what we've seen in the consumer world is like certain brands break out, you know, um, like a Swell or you know something like that, where theoretically, like there are lots of copycats where people want to buy the the you know the original. And maybe that's the case here. Like we've, we've met lots of companies recently that are doing kind of notion with some small twist or frankly, mm -hmm. just, you know, offering something that looks a lot like notion for less cost. Um, and um, I don't know, I don't know if that will actually draw any users away from, from notion. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, also in like another standout would be Warby Parker. I don't really know of any other major competitors. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think there's some, but I, but I think that the name recognition gives them kind of a certain level of defensibility. Yeah. And I was curious, so as work becomes more distributed and there's kind of more talks and I guess industry movement around kind of expanding, like is creating more startup hubs and having startups at scale starting appearing in other markets besides like SF, New York, some other, other tech hubs. Do you think that's more the case, or do you think because we're becoming more distributed, kind of startups already based in these established tech hubs are are kind of more easily able to penetrate these other markets that previously it was kind of hard to get access? Yeah, I mean the narrative is you know competition. I think is between like the internet is a new hub, and therefore everything is fully distributed and people can you know build come from anywhere, versus. Uh, you know, we're democratic, there will be like 10 or 15 technology hubs. And, um, you know, like I'm personally on the side, like I believe there is a lot of value in clustering. I think that's been true historically. And I think I'm a skeptic in the near future. I don't, I'm not a permanent skeptic. I'm certainly in the near future of, of, of you know, virtual connection being the same as in-person, you know, physical connection, just being able to have dinner, you know, like, 
very few people I think try to have dinner with someone else over Zoom. (laughs) It's just a very different experience. Um, And I think if you look at human history, industries have tended to cluster. Um, And there's no, that's no, uh, that's, that's no accident. Uh, Because I think there is, there is incredible value in serendipitous connection in know-how knowledge sharing. Um, I think there's no, you know, like there's no coincidence that so many, you know, cutting edge semiconductor companies are based in Taiwan, right? It, you know, you, you yeah. get this kind of um, self-reinforcing benefit. Um, that said, like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know that that means that Silicon Valley will be as dominant as it was in the past. I think that that dominance has been eroding for a long time and continues to do so. I, you know, I, as a, as an investor, like I, I think it would be malpractice, like not to um, spend a lot of time outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, I, I think on balance, it's better to live here uh, and spend kind of like your weekends here, given I think it you know still is the highest concentration of any other um, geography in the United States, but I think it would be malpractice not to regularly visit New York and Boston and, um, you know, Austin and, you know, perhaps Chicago and Seattle and LA and, you know, who knows, maybe this year, Miami. So, um, I I think there will be local clusters of that as well. Yeah. Do you find yourself being more deliberate and looking for startups in other geographies like like even outside of the u.s so in europe now is becoming like more prominent yeah i think that you know the struggle is always between we you know we want to have great coverage but you know we also need to be conscious of um uh, you know we want to have great we want to have great coverage we also need to be conscious and focus yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, impossible for any one person to cover, you know, both the United States and Europe, <laughs> maybe one person to cover the United States, let alone um, the United States and Europe. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's two questions what you're saying. One is, are we excited about companies getting built, you know, in Europe? I think we are. Um, I think given more resourcing and the right team members, we would love to spend more time there. Um, we, we feel under-resourced for that. And, you know, we're trying to stay focused on the U.S., but um, I think it's an incredibly exciting ecosystem. And it's over the last 10 years produced a lot of multi-billion dollar technology companies. And they, the alumni of those companies will go on to start the next generation of, of, of unicorn businesses as well. Yeah. Do you see people's like founders public or I guess like public previous background experience being more of a factor in whether they can successfully execute? So like, so let's say you have like example would be founders made significant open source contributions that are known in that community. Then they go to found some company or they have like a big social media following like in, along those lines. Um, I think that the thing that I, I really, that I get really excited about and that, um, you know, I find the most differentiated and rare is when the founder, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of that like cliche, right? Like, um, you know, genius like finds the, the target that no one could see. And I think that the, the piece I get really excited about is when a founder has particular depth and has a unique perspective on a, on a big market opportunity. They have this vision, you know, for what the market can be and, and not everyone else can see it. Uh, certainly people from outside the industry may not understand why that's incredibly valuable um, but even people in the industry may not feel like it's possible. Um, 
And so I, I do think that um, it, it, you know, in a lot of cases, it's hard to, um, you know, so one archetype of founder I, I get really excited to work with is just people who have, who know the problem they're tackling inside now. And because they know that problem inside now, they can craft a solution that's really differentiated mm-hmm. um, and unique and compelling and uh, in a way that others wouldn't have foreseen. Um, and so, you know, the social media following, I, I'm kind of indifferent to. I don't think it's a negative. Like, I, I, I'm not always sure it's positive, but the deep understanding of a problem, which by the way, doesn't necessarily correlate the number of years someone has spent in that industry, yeah. um, but a deep understanding and that unique insight, I think is, is really, is really interesting and important. Yeah, when, when, when some ideas that in the beginning seem really like might've seemed just like completely out of left field or ridiculous, do you think that's because there's a disconnect where the founder has such deep experience in that field where they're able to see something that everybody else thinks is like totally out of the question or, or is it more, or well, I'm just, I'm thinking more of like consumer cases where I guess this wouldn't really apply, but even enterprise, when that kind of thing happens, is it, is it more of that case or is it more of maybe it's just some super risky, like out of the nowhere that, that like ended up turning out well? Um, well, you know, if, if it's not obvious, sometimes it's just wrong. <laughs> right. Um, of course, that's the case. Like, um, I think that, um, you know, I think about, you know, one of my partners was an early investor in Kiva systems and you know, Kiva, as you may know, provides warehouse automation. They use robots to move shelves around the fulfillment center and make it, you know, reduce the amount of labor you need and, and increase the throughput you can drive out of a fulfillment center to, you know, power e-commerce. And, um, uh, you know, the, the founder had worked for a couple of years at Webvan, which is sort of the original Instacart <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. back in the back in the first dot com bubble. And, um, you know, I think he saw that opportunity. I, I think in that era, it may not have been obvious, you know, with the failure of Webvan and others, it not have been obvious, first of all, whether e-commerce was going to survive. I mean, that was an era where, you know, there was a number of years where people thought Amazon, you know, was was doomed, uh, you know, headed to bankruptcy. Um, so that, that's first of all, like they had belief that the future was we would all be ordering online. Um, I think that there was a second element, which is that you had to understand the way the Fulma Center worked and therefore how a robotic solution would fit into that. And he, he decided that uh, and then the third was you had to understand enough about robotics to know what was possible and what was likely you know, 10 or 20 years off. And that allowed Kiva to craft a solution that was focused on moving the shelves around, but not putting the items in boxes. Um, you had to know that robots could move shelves, but they probably couldn't pick up and place in an individual item. Um, those are all things like I think it's like really hard to know, you know, without yeah. knowing a lot about like you couldn't you couldn't like put these pieces together, I think, without knowing each piece really well. Um, so I, I do think that's part. And on the consumer side, maybe more to your question, you know, I'm I, I'm not a consumer investor, and so I don't know. I I think um, I think some consumer product companies really are right place, right time. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you just like happen to hit on the zeitgeist and, you know, it's in retrospect that, you know, you're a genius, but perhaps in the moment, maybe you didn't even know that what you were doing would hit such a, such a, such a chord. I think there are also founders who 
take a very like um, analytical approach to consumer. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate to work with a, um, a, a founder in the consumer packaged goods world, um, a very small investor in the company. And um, they have a very like, he, he has a very scientific way of thinking about like people's habits. You know, he, he'll, he can like day part a, a, a day in the average consumer's life. And, you know, when they would consume, you know, a, a product like his or a product in the category that his product is in, and he can tell you like, he, there's a certain profile of person we're going after. We're going to target them in this way. And our goal is to build a habit. We think we can, we can be their choice of this category of product for the, you know, afternoon period of their weekdays. Um, and, and they've been enormously successful today. I mean, they've grown a top line faster than many software companies that I work with. So, um, you know, I, I think, it, so I, again, I'm not a consumer investor, but it strikes me that in consumer, it's a little bit more common to be in the right place at the right time, but you, I think you can also take a scientific approach to it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, like shifting more, I guess, your personal background and just for college students in general, what's like one piece of typical advice given to college students or even just any young people interested in starting a company or being in tech that, that you think is sort of overwrought or that you disagree with? Um, I, let's see. I mean, I, I disagree with, um, I think that I have some young friends who um, really want to start a company as soon as possible. You know, they've kind of, there's this mantra that like, you'll learn more from starting a company than from any other experience. And uh, I, I think it's just wrong. Um, I, I think some people will. And I think if you get past a certain point, I think you will. But, you know, if you're kind of, you know, once you get the product into customers' hands, maybe that's the case. But you know, I think to align with the rest of this conversation, you know, I think um, you know, ideally, you want to know something about some industry or some customer that that is you know a little bit more unique. And I, I think it's hard for that to come from you know starting from scratch, particularly out of college, um, if you don't come from you know a very networked background. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people would benefit from picking an industry they find interesting and learning more about it and getting diving into it and looking for opportunity. I think it doesn't take a long time, two or three years, you can see things. I think even, I, I think back to my experience, I, you know, I, as you know, I worked for two, two or three years at a, at a sort of financial technology company in New York. And, um, I, you know, I don't know that I would have been the right founder to say these ideas, but I think there were ideas that I talked about with the team that weren't a fit for what we did at the company, but could have made a company of themselves. And mm -hmm. I think some of those ideas were actually probably good ideas, uh, but I wouldn't have seen them without working at the, at the company. I wouldn't have seen them without working with customers. I wouldn't have seen them without understanding the industry dynamic. Yeah. Um, so not to say, by the way, I think like if you, I, I think the exception to this rule is if you are a really like product oriented, fast iteration engineer, and you can just like build a lot of stuff and iterate, um, and you have a genuine interest in testing customers and learning, like, I think that's the one exception. Um, but if you, but if you don't like ship code, like, you know, like, like, a, like better than almost anyone else, your age group, mm -hmm. um, or you're a non-technical founder, like I think, you really want to figure out how can you learn an industry inside and out. And I, I think it's hard to do that from, you know, when you're just trying to start a company from scratch, I think you want to bend, you know, draft off the tailwind of, you know, a company that has relationships in the industry and customers, et cetera, that you can learn from. Yeah. 
Exactly. So just like tangentially related, what is your view on kind of the specialization versus being general debate? Um, I think it's kind of a false dichotomy. I mean, I think almost everyone needs to be a generalist at some, you know, as it needs to be generally good at like a lot of things that are not a core, a core competency. Yeah. Um, but you do, I do think you, you know, <clears throat> I, um, I, I have sort of this theory that, um, you know, you, you really want to specialize in something by, by 30 uh, or 32. I, I think that like the reality is, um, you know, that for any of us that like, I, you know, I want to start a family at some point, um, you know, there's 24 hours in a day and I've, I want to devote, you know, an increasing number of those hours to, you know, family and personal life and perhaps my parents and as they grow older and, um, you know, so therefore like kind of the number of hours you can invest in, in your work, you know, is sort of going to decline logarithmically, right? As in it'll, it'll decline by a steep amount, you know, as you start family and, and probably like, you know, um, level out over time. Um, so th therefore, like, if you, if you think that's the curve of like your, your, your time budget, then your like efficiency per hour budget has to, you, you know, like curve has to be exponential to mm -hmm. counteract it because if, if if your if your if your growth is sort of uh flat or if your if your if your efficiency per hour is um is even like linear then it may produce like a sublinear trend in your output sorry this is a very mathematical model but i think it i think no, it no, also no. illustrates the point right yeah like, no, that makes a lot of sense yeah because it's so the i think the only way to get exponential compounding growth in your output per hour is to specialize uh, you can i don't think you can really get it by generalizing so i i think like People should explore. I don't think people should feel the urge to pick, you know, too soon. But I would say, like the, given that compounding nature, I think there's a lot of value in committing to something early. Um, yeah, I feel like it's been a benefit to me, and I think other people shouldn't be afraid of it. I think the, I think if you wait too long, you know, I, I think it it becomes harder. Yeah. No, I think that's great advice. And then just, just to close, one last question. Are there any like podcast books, newsletters that you personally like or or that you would think would be appropriate for like a college student or somebody college like somebody younger who wants to start getting involved in the tech scene? Um uh, yeah, I mean I'm I think it's gotten now kind of mainstream, but I'm a fan of the all in podcast. Uh, just because it's kind of like raw, unfiltered, like points of view from um, like really, frankly, like really baller people <laughs> in technology uh, yeah. who like meet lots, who like spend time with lots of founders, have been founders and entrepreneurs themselves, um, and uh, and they're very open and honest. Um, and uh, you know, I I personally love reading books that give a view into like the the entrepreneur's mindset. Um, you know, the books like Shoe Dog from the Nike founder and yeah. um, who is Michael Ovitz from, you know, Michael Ovitz. They don't have to be tech founders. I think it's just interesting to read their perspectives. Yeah, I actually just finished listening to that, like an audiobook a week ago. I thought that was, that was great. Yeah, awesome. Glad to hear that.